You are listening to a message from Thrive Community Church, a church located in Southwest Florida. For more info, visit us at thrive-fl.org. Now, I've told this joke before, but I think it bears repeating. Amanda was six years old, and she was in the kitchen on the table with uh, pencils and drawing away with colored pencils. And her mother came in as her mom was just passing through and said, Amanda, what are you drawing? And Amanda says, I am drawing a picture of God. And her mother said, oh, Amanda, but you know, nobody knows what God looks like. And Amanda says to her mom, well, they will after I'm done with this drawing. Yes, we don't have any images of God, and the Bible is uh, got a commandment about trying to create a statue or likeness to worship God. But the question still remains, what do you imagine or image, or how do you project, or what do you think God is like? What is he at his heart? What makes him tick? What may tick him off? What, what is he in his character, in his being, beyond the power and the glory and the might and the omniscience, omnipotence, omnipresence that most would attribute to God, who is he? What is he like? That's the big question, I think, that we need to have. And quite frankly, this is what A.W. Tozer says about when you think of God, what that means and how important it is. Because what comes to our minds when we think of God, is, and, um, is the most important thing about us. How you see God determines how you really see yourself and this world and other people. If you think God is more or less the divine watchmaker as the deists did, some of those who were founders of our country, where they thought, yes, there is a grand designer. He set up this world like a ticking watch. Now we get to discover it. We can exploit it. We can use it. We can control it. He's no longer in the picture. Our reason is the number one thing about us. And they lived in response to their understanding of God, that he was distant and had moved and left the planet. If you believe that God is all about fairness and he's basically holding court every day to determine and weigh you on the scales of good and bad, you'll probably try to do a lot of good things and then to bargain with God that you're better than you're worser, that you've done good, enough good to make up for some of the bad things that you've done. And you can start playing kind of the lawyer games with God. But if you believe that God is love, not power, not just about justice, not just about omniscience or omnipresence or omnipotence, but about love, all loving, all joy, then you have a whole different picture of being in God's presence. The fact that he enjoys you being with him, wants you to be with him. That it's central to his person is this fellowship of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and all joy, all love, all being, all celebration, the dance of eternity from beginning to end. All of a sudden, then being in God's presence, joining in worship, doing things with God, having him be in your life is no longer an obligation or a threat or an evaluation every day. 
but it's a joy itself. It's a celebration. It's a party. So today in our second message on replenish, we are going to be talking about rejoicing and what it means that at the heart of creation and the heart of redemption and the heart of salvation is God's joy and his joy becomes our replenishment of our souls. We're going to read a short passage from the book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah chapter 8, you can follow along here. And Nehemiah who was the governor, and Ezra the priest and scribe, and the Levites who taught the people said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, Go your way, eat the fat, and drink sweet wine, and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready. For this day is holy to the Lord. And do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So from this passage, we're going to explore these three things about replenishment and joy. What joy actually is, why it's important, and how to get more of it. How do you experience it? What joy is. The word is used quite often by a lot of people, and I think for many people, joy and happiness are interchangeable. Happiness actually is from the uh, Old English word happenstance, and it's based on circumstances. And people rejoice or are happy in this world when their team wins, when they get a promotion, when they get a good grade, when something good happens, when they experience a fun event, when they are gathered together and they have a celebration of a birthday, or, well, anything they can think of. And I think from that, people think joy or happiness for them goes up and down and is always just temporary. It's based on circumstances. You have to, like, get to joy. Life itself can be dull or drudgery or difficult, and so you work for the weekend. And we're seeing that right now in the state of Florida with some of the upticks in COVID-19 as people are tired and want to get out and party their little brains out and then, well, don't do the social distancing and everything else. So they look for joy either in one of two realities. One is to deny the reality of how difficult the world is and tune out the news, tune out it all, and basically say, I'm not going to listen to that. I'm just going to be joyful and happy like Pollyanna. Or they say, if I work hard enough and I earn enough and I get there, then I deserve the joy and I can have the type of vacation to take a break from all this other stuff. That joy becomes the break from reality. Now, the Bible will talk about how life is difficult. Nehemiah knew that in this passage, that life was difficult because he had come back to Jerusalem and the walls of Jerusalem had fallen down and they weren't being built up and things were difficult and the whole city was in a rubble mess. And the Bible will talk about how life can be perplexing and troubling. And there are many Psalms in the book of Psalms that are called laments, that is, where they grieve or doubt or question what's going on and how God is involved in it. And the Bible is also filled with other passages about wisdom of work and working hard and not 
prone to laziness. But the Bible has a different view of joy than I think you see in our society. Because joy is not a distraction from the reality of what life really is like. Joy is the reality of how God has always intended and how God has always undergird and how God will bring to the end the experience of joy. Joy is who our God is in his heart and why he created this world, why he has redeemed this world, and where he will bring this world one day. I love how Dallas Willard talks about God's character and who he is in his book, The Divine Conspiracy. He writes, God is the most joyous being in the universe. Have you ever thought of that? That God has more joy than anyone. The abundance of his love and generosity is inseparable from his infinite joy. All the good and beautiful things from which we occasionally drink tiny droplets of soul exhilarating joy. God continually experiences in all their breadth and depth and richness. Wow. That's who our God is. He is filled with joy and Love and celebrates Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in this dance of eternal love and happiness and contentment and joy and self-giving and, and absolutely just self-effacing to the others, giving glory to the other persons within that trinity. Isn't that amazing? God is this community of joy. Even in one of the saddest and most difficult books to read in the Bible, that is the book of Job, the story of Job, who lost everything, family, friends. And then the friends that he did get in the end were not that good because they kept telling him to basically curse God and die or that he was at fault for why his life was falling apart. That book is tough to read because of all the woe and gloom and doom. But in the midst of it, Job finally meets God in a whirlwind. And God confronts Job because Job has basically said it would have been better for me to just have never lived at all, never to have been born. And God responds to him from a whirlwind and challenges him and says, where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? Tell me if you understand. Who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know. You stretched a measuring line across it. On what were its footings set? Or who laid its cornerstone while the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy? Joy. So, you know, what's amazing about this passage are a couple of things. First of all, that God says it was a celebration when he created the world. He rejoiced in it. He celebrated the angels of God. He created a chorus of beings who would be with him to celebrate and to party over all that he had made in the wonder and beauty of this world. And the way he describes his creation in the book of Job, the metaphor he uses is as if he is building a house to dwell in, a sanctuary, a temple, and that he himself would display his glory in all of his creation. And that is his intent and purpose. He is joyful at his heart, and he wants you to experience and enjoy his presence and his joy. You know, happiness... It's here and there. It's based on circumstances. 
But joy is really happiness based on God's purposes and promises. It's fundamental to why he built this world as his temple to dwell within all of his creation, why he has chosen to redeem this world through his son, Jesus Christ, and where he is going to bring this world one day. Robert Frost was a poet laureate of the United States, I believe. And um, I, I remember one of his most famous poems is called Fire and Ice. And in it, at the end, he basically um, contemplates which way is the world going to end? Will it end in fire, that is a angry conflagration of wrath? Or will it end in ice of apathy, indifference, and coldness? And I think, if I recall, for my high school years reading the poem, he believes it's probably going to end in ice. The Bible would say, neither. Neither fire nor ice. Oh yes, there might be cataclysmic events, and the book of Revelation is filled with some of those things, pictures of those things. But the end end result is the world will end in celebration, in joy. Read the end of the book of Revelation, and you see how it ends when God inhabits and his glory inhabits, and we are celebrating, and that there are no more tears, and no more death, and no more gloom. And there is continual celebration and joy. God's going to have this world's purpose and direction be joy. Now, you start getting an understanding of what joy is. Now we're going to talk about simply why is it so important to experience that joy? Nehemiah, like I said, he came back to Jerusalem. So this was after Israel had totally forsaken the Lord and Judea had been taken into captivity in Babylon for 70 years. And at the end of that 70 years, Nehemiah became a cupbearer to the king Artaxerxes. A cupbearer was someone who would drink from the cup before he gave it to the king so that if anybody got poisoned, or if they tried to poison the king, he'd die before the king would drink it, right? So he's right in the presence of Artaxerxes day after day, and Artaxerxes sees all of a sudden that Nehemiah is just distraught. He is so sad because Nehemiah had heard about Jerusalem and its devastation, and that some of God's people had gone back and nothing was happening. It was just, uh, it was vulnerable to attack. The walls were destroyed and in ruin. The city was a mess. And Artaxerxes asks him what was going on in his heart and what he wanted. And he gave him permission. He actually authorized him. Artaxerxes authorized um, Nehemiah to go back to Jerusalem and to rebuild the walls of that city. So Nehemiah could have just simply gone back and set himself to the big and hard and seriousness of the task. And that's all he could have been focused on. And in fact, at the beginning of the book, it seems like that's all Nehemiah is focused on, is on the task. And he's going to try to figure out how to do it the fastest with the most people, no matter what the threats of people in the land. But I think Meg Booker said it right when we come to this part of Nehemiah in chapter 8 and following, that more is going on. And he says, and she says that Nehemiah 
was not only concerned with rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem, but also passionate about restoring the hearts of the people. He wasn't just about work. It wasn't just about getting things done. He wasn't just task-oriented. He was about the character of the people and the joy that they had. So he could have probably gotten a lot done. He could have threatened the people that God's wrath would come down on them if they didn't finish the work. That lasts so long. Or he could have instilled fear in them and um, mongered fear above them and sold them on that, that the people of the land are going to attack. If you don't get this done, things could fall apart. Or he could try to guilt them and how they were bad people or shame them that they were not following through and they were worthless or whatever. But those things only get you so far and they all diminish the soul. But joy when the people realize that the end purpose is not just building walls, but being inhabited by God in themselves and in their community. When they know the joy of the Lord, he says, it will be their strength. Joy is not a means just to hard work. It's not just a means to greater things. It's actually that which restores your soul, your life. So that's why Nehemiah said, even when they had been hearing the law of God and realized how they had broken the commandments, he says, no, don't just get stuck and wallow in your grief or repentance, but go out. This is a day that is set holy to the Lord. Go your way, eat the fat and drink sweet wine and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready for this day is holy to the Lord. And do not be grieved for the joy of the Lord is your strength. God's joy over you, God's joy over creation, God's joy over his redemption, God's superabundance beyond all the measly things that we've done in our lives. His perspective is one still of joy. And that becomes your strength. And he says, this day is holy to you. So joy is not momentary. Joy is what you will experience as the default of eternity, and you get to experience the joy of God moment by moment, day by day, no matter your circumstances, up or down, or because God is with you, and God rejoices in your presence, and God wants you to be with you. So that, the joy of the Lord is your refreshment, your strength, the vi vitality of your life. That's why it's important. And finally, how do you get more of it then? So Nehemiah said, this day is holy to the Lord. Sometimes we think holy is, you know, either the halo around the head or, um, oh, that person's above everybody. That's not what, what the word holy means to set aside, to take aside and put aside time, in this instance, a day, or objects, or people, or things, or events, to be used only and to be led by God. So Jeremiah was saying, or excuse me, Nehemiah was saying, <laughs> this day is holy, it's set apart by God. God has set apart this day, like the Sabbath day, the seventh day of the week, to be a special time of just enjoying you, and you enjoying him. Uh, 
I love how um, Timothy Keller says it in one of his writings. He says, according to the Bible, the Sabbath is more uh, is about more than just taking time off. After creating the world, God looked around and saw that it was very good. This is from Genesis chapter 1. God did not just cease from his labor. He stopped and enjoyed what he made. What does that mean for us? We need to stop and enjoy God, to enjoy his creation, to enjoy the fruits of our labor. The whole point of Sabbath is joy in what God has done and who God is and who God is for you. So each Sabbath is a little kind of piece of eternity of God's joy in the midst of time. It's a time where we get to refresh, be replenished, and enjoy. A time to stop trying and working and planning and attempting and scheming and organizing and sweating and controlling and moving and improving and simply just to receive, to rejoice, to celebrate, to recreate to get a little glimpse of why God made us in the first place and why God redeemed us. And it's not really just the time that is set aside as if it's, oh my gosh, I've got to use this 24 hours period the end. It's not about using at all. It's really about what it signifies about God and about you. We get to rest from work. We rest from having to work. We rest from any notion that our Value to God is based on what we can do and how much we work. It's not a performance. Instead, we realize we are loved simply because he made us and we are his. He loves us so much he rejoices over us. It's really about his goodness and his abundance and his mercy. Sabbath reminds me regularly that I am accepted by God, not by what I do or what I can accomplish, but by whose I am, that I am his. When you just can set aside that time and enjoy God and enjoy his creation, enjoy those God has made, and to do something like that, you get a picture, like uh, <clears throat> Matt Chandler says, you get a picture of our acceptance and justification before God not being built on our merit. It's by grace that we get to rejoice. I don't know if you realize this. We not only are created by God, we are redeemed by God in joy. In the book of Hebrews, the writer describes Jesus himself and the joy he had, the, for the joy that was set before him, that he would endure the cross, scorning its shame. And the joy that was set before Jesus, if he could be joyful about his crucifixion, his alienation and separation from God, his abandonment, his going through hell and backness, the weight of the sins of the whole world upon him, that he could have joy at that time was not because that moment was over, but because he saw you in that moment and the future you would have with him. His joy is that he gets to spend eternity with you, that he would spend his whole life to just to get that chance to be with you and to have you as his very own again. So how do we experience that joy? What is that joy all about? It's receiving that gospel word, taking time off. Now, on a more practical note, how do I set that time aside? What do I do? 
quote, what do I do with the day or not do with the day or how can I use that day or what do you do? I like how Abraham Herschel, a rabbi, had said years ago, he said, um, a man who works with his hands will Sabbath with his mind. A man who works with his mind will Sabbath with his hands. In other words, find something that's different to do, something you love to do that you don't get to do for work. You know, if you're all about manual labor, maybe you get to read, maybe you get to take a walk, maybe you get to just enjoy a hobby. If you're all about uh, mental work, if you're all planning and, and processing and all of these things, maybe it's something that is physical in nature. Sabbath doesn't mean you stop doing anything. It's Sabbath is a time to enjoy God's creation, being his creature, reflecting and having him involved in it. So do you have a day to rejoice? regularly, not to work for the weekend and then part of your brains out as if it's time away from God, but a day to celebrate with God, to fellowship with him and with others. Do you have a way to disconnect from all the stuff that can be around you and to be distracting and connect with God? A day for a walk, a day for good conversations, maybe a day to read a book or to listen to music or to do something in the yard, not that you have to, but you get to. A time with the kids, a time for a walk in the park to breathe the fresh air. That's the kind of day God wants you to have regularly and one he loves being involved in. A day to rejoice and to rejoice with you and over you. Would you please pray with me? Lord God, this is another of your beautiful days that you've made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it, as the psalmist says. Make this day all about your goodness and grace. Help us not to see you as kind of like the one hounding us or coming after us or evaluating us daily like the boss in the sky, but as a heavenly father who rejoices and loves his children and wants to give them the best at all times. And so we come to you this day as a result of that, Lord God, wanting the best for our time with you today and for others that we are bringing before you now. For those who are sick in our congregation and recovering, Lord God, we pray that you would be with them and bring your healing presence. For those who are lonely right now, who have tired so much of all of the social isolation as a result of the COVID-19 pandemic. We pray, Lord, that you connect us uh, through whatever means and creative means, Lord, to be your family. For those, oh Lord, who are worried about finances because of either unemployment or instability of their work, or for those who own businesses that are struggling so much at this time, we pray, Lord, for your providence and your providing, and that we can rest and cast all our anxiety on you because you care for us. For those, Lord, who need your healing, in our congregation right now, we lift again Andy uh, Blankenship and the chemotherapy she's undergoing, Lord. We pray for your mercies on her and all of us. We pray, O oh Lord, for those recovering from surgeries and procedures that you would be with them. Lord God, on this um, holiday weekend, we again want to rejoice and celebrate with the goodness you've given in our lives, the goodness of the freedoms that we have. 
We thank you for them, Lord. Help us not to exploit them or use them or feel like we're entitled to them, but to um, steward them and manage them for the sake of others and for the sake of your kingdom. Help us never neglect you or to kind of push you out of our lives and just try to hoard it for ourselves. And help us to see the abundance of having you in our lives and that the joy, your joy over us is our strength. Thank you, Lord Jesus. And now, Lord, hear us as the one family for all the prayers that we couldn't uh, enunciate today specifically, we still get to pray for because we know you're praying through us and you're praying with us and you've given us the words. And so we pray the prayer you taught us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the power, the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen.